0: Good morning brethren, hard to beat that hymn, modern day hymn, the realities of which it speaks is beyond words, what we will be when he returns, not even John says can we know fully, we just know when he returns we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. Let's pray together. Father, we open your word this morning because it is your word. Lord, those of us who are in Christ are are done with our opinions. We desire to flee to the law and to the testimony as your disciples. We want to know, what do you say? And that's why we've come. Lord, we want to sing to you and sing praises to you, Lord, because it gives us joy. Unspeakable to think of our Savior, to think of our God, but also just because you're just worth it. You're far more glorious than the most glorious created thing. You created all things. Your glory, as the psalmist says, is above the heavens. That's who you are. Lord, this morning... Um, you, the one who spoke everything into existence in six days, you spoke your word, and we pray that you would speak into our hearts this morning to take your word, seal it on our hearts, write it with an iron stylus that we might not depart from it or let it vanish from our sight. Lord, that we might be renewed, that we might be restrengthened, that we might gain another glimpse of you and your Son and your purposes for your people in this world. And as we talk about this morning subject that potentially is sensitive, we ask you again that you give us faith in your wisdom laid out in these verses we will be looking at today. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Good to be back after a couple weeks being gone good to be able to just open the word with you, my friends, and most of you know if you've been with us any length of time that I've been going through 1 Peter for a while, so we've come to verse 18 this morning, but I would like to read 11 through 25, and I asked Dave to cut a song out during the worship because we do have a lot to cover, so just stick with me. And hopefully you'll see a good justification for that as we go through. Starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants. Or slaves, as your translations may be. Be submissive to your masters with all fear. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Not a good translation in my view. Wicked is probably a better translation. Or harsh. Wicked sort of captures it. Verse 19, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin, you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps what did he do when he was unjustly treated? He committed no sin. No deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, uttered no threats. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Amazing verses. Gripping verses. Peter's teaching these Christians in Asia how to live faithfully, following Jesus Christ as exiles in an unjust world. Right? The injustice prevalent in that day is the same injustice as prevalent in our day. Maybe it looks different. Maybe it's more concentrated in different areas of our world than others. But humanity has not changed. I think we'd all agree. And so the question is: When you live in an unjust world and you're a believer, how do you think about injustice? How do you think about being treated and suffering unjustly, truly unjustly? How do you deal with being marginalized by your family? How do you deal with being persecuted by your neighbors, or or, or ostracized by your community, or threatened by your parents when you, as a Muslim, convert to Christianity and you're chased out of your village? You lose all prospects of your livelihood. How do you do that? What do you do? How do you think about it? That's what Peter's addressing. And the reason I chose First Peter, whenever it was, last year, two years ago, to start going through is because America is going to be continually uh, becoming more and increasingly um, hostile toward Christians. I think that's clear, isn't it? We're going to continue to experience what it is to live in a world that has their sights set on believers. And specifically to terrorize us, specifically to try to um, uproot our faith, to discourage us, to make us fearful. And the Lord gave us Peter. His, name's, his name means rock. Why? God can make a man like Peter a rock. He can make us rocks, can't he? By his spirit, that's what he can do. Can make the righteous bold as lions. Peter tells us this in this letter how to live as exiles boldly, like Jesus in an unjust world. In verse 11, Peter has transitioned to talking to us now about. Because we are all these things that he listed in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, about being chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, spelling out all of our identity markers, our designations, who we are now in Jesus, he then turns to say, now, in light of that, verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts, and verse 12, keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you, you'll silence them by your good behavior. Peter is changing now to what we do in light of who we are. That's what he's doing. And I want you to notice that in verse 12, this whole section that follows verse 12 is about excellent behavior. What does excellent behavior look like as Christians? What does that mean? What is the content of excellent behavior? Well, he doesn't leave it to guessing. He tells us. The first thing he tells us, well, the first thing he told us before even verse 12 is to wage war against fleshly lust. That's the first thing, right? You maintain your heart before the Lord. You put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, and that's... Part of it so always starts with the heart. Always starts with the lusts. That's what you have to control. Verse 12, then he talks about this just sort of an abstract or general term, good deeds. But then when he, he, he moves into the subsequent passages, now he's going to get even more detailed. And he begins with our submission to governing authorities. Right? That's what he says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every hum, human institution. That is, every institution created by man in which hierarchical authority structures exist. Be submissive. And that's what it says. It says submit. It means more than respect. It means obey. I think that's clear. And last time we were together, I got all the way down into verse 17, and I didn't finish, honor the king. I got all the way down to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, but I left out honor the king. You have to understand something about What Peter is saying here. Peter is explaining or expressing to these believers that we are exiles. What that means is that our view of our home here, our earthly home, is temporary, is transient. We are exiles. We have a bigger picture view than the rest of the world. We know how history is going to end. The concerns of men and women in this world are not fundamentally our concerns. We submit ourselves to unjust rulers because we have bigger fish to fry than fixing governments. We have bigger fish to fry than changing cultures. We can honor all people. We can honor a king, even like Nero, who was the ruler at the time of Peter's writing, probably, in Italy. But he was the head cheese. Of course, the provinces had different prefects. And yet, he was the big cheese. Peter is very conscious of that. Paul, maybe even more so, writing in Romans. To the Romans, in Italy, submit yourselves to the governments that be. These guys aren't ignorant of who's in power. It's very fashionable in our day for that to be downplayed. Let's not downplay it. Let's recognize the facts. <laughs> and the facts are that Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles say, submit yourselves to the governments that be. Now, obviously, I'm saying, not with regard to sin, not with the things that God commands that they tell us not to do, but as it pertains to just about everything else. Paul is saying you take a posture of submission. Why? Is it because we're weak? No. Ultimately, there are several reasons why we do. Peter's going to spell that out. But ultimately, it's because this is the way of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus in his own death and meekness unto death gives us an example of how to live under the regime of unjust governments. Honor the king. Honor the king. Honor Joe Biden. How's that land on you? I don't want to do that. Honor the king, not just know he's there and he's you should respect him to some degree. I mean, honor. Honor's a pretty strong word to use for Joe Biden. Or Kim Jong-un. Right? Vladimir Putin. Russian Christians, how do you think about your ruler? Honor the king. How can we do that? We recognize that God sets up men, brings down men. Putin's God's man. Biden's God's man. Do I mean by that that Biden is a Christian or Putin's a Christian? Obviously not. I mean he's the man that God installed. Is God sovereign meticulously so over the affairs of men? I think he is. Therefore, Peter and Paul are not ignorant to that when he says, honor the king. We must have a posture towards towards these governing authorities that God has set up. And that's the very reason why we do is because God has set them up. And God has purposes in bringing evil men into the world so that Christians can display to this world that is so anxious about their own lives here that we have a hope that transcends this world. Evil men bring in unjust policies and rules and they they oppress and start to squeeze Christians. And what do Christians do? They still sing and rejoice and hope in the world to come. And it shows the watching world what it is to have a hope beyond the grave. That's why God does it. Oh, it's a wise plan in the end. We will know that. But you have to understand, that's what's behind this. That's what's behind it. And then Peter says something audacious in 18 through 20. Slaves, be submissive to your masters. Slaves? Some of your translations say servants. Mine says servants. Not a bad translation. I think rather slaves is probably more appropriate, and I'll spell out some reasons why. First word there, servants, be submissive to your master. The servants, the word there is oikotai. Oikos is the word for household. Some translations say domestic slaves or domestics. Young's literal says domestics, and IV says slaves. Exodus 5 in the Septuagint and Exodus 12 use the, the language of slave, translate it slave in the context of the children of Israel under the regime and tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt. Exodus twelve forty three forty four 44 is a good specimen text on this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. So giving ordinance, here's the Passover. God's talking about the foreigner and every man's slave purchased with money. That's the word. You know it's slave because it's the man purchased with money. And that's the word that Peter uses here. It's what the Septuagint translators used. They used Oikatas, Oikatai. Deuteronomy 5.5 5 uses the same word here. And clearly the context is slavery. Proverbs 30, 21 and 22. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and under a fool when he's satisfied with food. Here's the contrast between lowest of society, slaves, highest in society, kings. That's the word. So this term denotes, the pop, denotes something like, I mean definitely slave, probably domestic slave. Probably slave that lived for private owners. Probably not owned by the state, in other words. Probably domestic slaves. Now some domestic slaves can be owned by very wealthy landowners. Some Roman wealthy landowners had more than 4,000 slaves. So when we say domestic slave, we don't necessarily just mean to help downstairs. We may mean a whole slug load of slaves working the farms. And what makes it even more likely that the term denotes slave is that these slaves or servants, as Peter says, are to submit to those who are called despotes, masters. And when the despotes is used, it can be used usually in passages where bondservant or slaves are clearly in view. Let me just, I have a couple here. Let me, go to, let me just do one. 1 Timothy 6.1 All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own despotes, masters. Same masters that are over these servants, called despotes, as worthy of all honor so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. To hear that? All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles, Timothy. A couple observations about this text. Slavery slavery is clearly in view. First century Roman slavery, clearly in view. Paul says, under the yoke as slaves. With despotes as masters. The term masters in this text is the same as in First Peter. And the instruction is the same with different wording. Paul says, Christian slaves must regard their masters with all honor. For the sake of God's name. You have theological reasons for your submission. Theological reasons for your giving them all honor. And lastly here, Paul assumes that there are some Christians who were slave masters as well. He says those who have believers as masters must serve them even better because they are brethren and benefit from their service. Wow, that's, that does not go over well in this society, right? How in the world can Paul say this? Lost on our generation. So my conclusion here is that the servants in First Peter's context were domestic slaves. Probably those who did not work directly for the state, but private slave owners. And worked for these despotes, these masters. Now it's worth saying a few things about slavery in the Roman Empire. I normally don't go this much into background. I think it's going to be helpful. So just stick with me here, because I might read a lot of my own notes and thoughts after a fair amount of study. First century slavery in the Roman Empire. Virtually no one questioned the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. It was a pervasive practice and accepted as the norm. Now most empires utilized slavery to varying degrees, whether you're Carthaginians or the Assyrians, I mean Egyptians, slavery was not unique or common, or unique or, or uh, exclusive to Rome. In Rome, it was probably mostly brought about by the vast number of conquests the Roman Empire accomplished and the POWs they acquired. I mean, we talked about the Carthaginians in in Sunday school, how how Rome, through the Punic Wars, gained victory. Well, they gained a lot of people with that victory, a lot of POWs. What do you do with them? You can kill them, you can ship them off, or you can integrate them into your society. And Rome chose to integrate a lot of them into society. Around the first century in Rome, slaves made up approximately 30% of the population in Italy. Let that sink in for a second. 30% of the population in Italy. Which meant the numbers were in the millions. In the province regions outside of Italy, the percentage was less, maybe more like 10%. But in the Roman Empire, in the first century, there is estimated to have been approximately 50 million slaves in the population. This is, in many ways, um, uh, the reason, well, it sort of forced an economic situation. What do you do with them? Let's put them to work. Well, how do you do that? Do you pay them? No, they're enemies. What do you do? So you enslave them. That's what what would happen. Plus, there were a lot of rich landowners in Rome. As, As the conquests grew, empire grew, elites and their wealth grew, land grew, need for for working that land grew, therefore the slaves ended up finding work to do. Now, you could become a slave in multiple ways, as I've already said, you could be a POW, be a prisoner of war, you could sell yourself into someone's possession to pay off debt, which was common throughout history, even in Israel, being born while your parent was a slave would make you a slave. And if you were born to slave parents, those parents had no legal right over you. They were not your children legally. They were the master's children. You could also become a slave if your parents sold you into the ownership of a slave to pay off their own debt if they had no money. Ironically, slavery in the Roman Empire, though, was also a means to better status in in some instances. hard to believe, but that's true. There were... There were slaves of individual private tradesmen and farmers on small farms, but they were also slaves of elite politicians. And depending on your performance in the slave market, one could work their way up to a better economic situation. A more elite master could notice the characteristics and traits and qualities and skills in another slave who may be educated and choose to buy that slave and move them up. And that would be that slave's intention. It's interesting how that, how that works, but in some ways it's a, it caused some of them to climb a ladder. And sometimes people would literally sell themselves into slavery in hopes of working for an upper class master. To be a slave in Rome meant you were someone else's property by legal right. That is fundamentally what it means. To be someone else's property by legal right. Someone literally bought and paid for you. Most likely at one of the slave market posts on your region. These slaves would stand on the slave block, in whatever particular slave market post they had. Their value would be determined by sort of looking them over like an animal, looking inside their mouth, looking at their physique. They'd be written on with chalk, accentuating the strengths and weaknesses. Some ethnicities that were more desirable for certain tasks than others. For instance, they'd say Syrians were better for some trades than certain African nations, and so on and so forth. But once examined and paid for, you were someone else's property. Now, Roman slavery was different than, let's say, the North Atlantic slave trade in which Europe, Africa, and the Americas were involved because this slave trade would eventually be justified by racial prejudice. Eventually, black people were deemed as an inferior race by many whites in America to justify enslaving them. Roman slavery was not as much based on racial prejudice. There were many slaves, in fact, that were neighbors to their slave masters growing up with no ethnic difference whatsoever. Romans typically didn't see slaves as an inferior race of people, but they did think of them as having inferior status. And associating with them had strong stigma as well probably also important to say that the north atlantic slave trade was not based on racism initially but based on exploiting vulnerable peoples in africa who were being sold by their own people for profit to more wealthy europeans so much for reparations doesn't really work where do you stop paying back the money and who pays it Slavery was an economic transaction historically, by and large, which certainly was born out of human evil, no question, but nonetheless was not race-based per se. And typically throughout world history, slavery did not have anything to do with racial prejudice. The treatment of slaves in the Roman Empire was extremely varied, as it was in the Americas. Some slave masters encouraged and paid for their slaves to be highly educated. There are many examples of the slaves being more educated than their masters in the Roman Empire. Indeed, slaves worked in all types of occupations, lawyers, doctors, clerks, ladies' maids, midwives, etc. But most were farmers, those who worked in the mines, which those would have been the worst jobs, just like they are today, <laughs> in terms of the mines. But this didn't change the fact that they were still property. There was still the experience that is common in all of, of slavery, human exploit. Or, human exploitation is common in all slave contexts. James Jeffers in his book on the Greco-Roman world writes this, male and female slaves were always employable for sexual purposes. Attractive girls and young women were at the mercy of their male masters and attractive young boys might be kept for their homosexual male masters. As far as I can tell, there is nothing in Roman law against it. At least not In the first century, there were laws that did protect slaves from some abuse, but most of that was, I want to say, physical in nature, in terms of beatings and things. But even that was overlooked oftentimes. Seneca, first century philosopher, living during the first century, died around when the Apostle Paul died, says this. To regarding the poor treatment of slaves, he says this, because he's observed it talking to the masters. You may take a slave in chains and at your pleasure expose him to every test of endurance. But too great violence in the striker has often dislocated a joint or left a sinew fastened in the very teeth it has broken. Anger has left many a man crippled, many disabled, even when found its victim submissive. Much more could be said, but most of the treatment depended on the integrity or lack thereof of the masters. Like slavery in America, Roman slavery was chattel. Seems like it's trendy to say that Roman slavery was less intense. I do not understand that, if you've read any of the material for any length of time. I think churches like to do that because they want to try to get Paul and Peter out of hot water. I think that's unfair. I think it's unbiblical. It doesn't, doesn't do justice to history. can't tell me that first century Roman slaves, where they thought it fun to throw Christians and other people to lions for entertainment, was less harsh than the North Atlantic slave trade. It was chattel. The person who was a slave was owned as property, had no say on their living conditions unless they had just masters, and in these cases were better off than many of the poor freemen and women of Rome. But many were treated like animals, or worse. But it was a very mixed bag in Rome. And when you got 50 million slaves, very, very different experiences amongst them all. So this is sort of a brief sketch of slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire. So the servants Peter addresses in 2.18 were apparently pervasive enough in Asia and in the church that Peter is writing to, in the churches Peter's Peter is writing to, that he took an occasion to write to them. And their master's nice enough to let him go to the, to, the, to, the, to the meetings, apparently, because they would hear this, potentially. Those who wouldn't, hopefully, would be told this. Peter exhorts these Christian household slaves to something. And it's interesting here, he doesn't even address masters. He doesn't touch masters. He only addresses slaves. And what does he tell them? 2.18. imperatively, be submissive to your masters. Now this word submissive, in the Old Testament Septuagint, the term means subdued. Actually, it can be translated pledging allegiance to, which is interesting. Or to wait in silence before. It's used of God. I will wait in silence for God only. That word is hupatasa. That's the word of bringing yourself underneath and waiting for him to respond. That's the idea. That's the posture. In the Greek world, it was used as a military term in the sense of falling in rank under authority. So what's Peter saying here to these slaves? Peter's saying these household slaves are to recognize their masters as the authority and fall in rank under them. They are to have a submissive posture and obviously obedience to their commands is assumed. Some people think submission only means something like respect, but certainly it's more than this. It means to obey the authority over you. When the church submits to Jesus Christ, she does not merely respect what he has said. She does what her Lord has said. So this is the idea. The servants who presumably have different types of masters must remember that just because they are believers now and are free from the fear of man and recognize man is not their absolute authority, they must recognize that these masters do have authority over them that requires a certain behavior of submission. That's clear. I think that's crystal clear. And, and you may, as we go through this, have more questions about, well, what about this and what about that? Like I say all the time, I want to get the text right first. And then maybe we can talk about this or that. Let's get the text right first. Because this is God's word, and we want to submit ourselves to that. He's our master, and we want to show submission by learning what he says, appropriating what it says, seeing that what he says is good. So Peter does not speak ill. He doesn't doesn't speak ill of their masters. He doesn't critique masters. He's not ignorant that these masters, some of them may be wicked, as he will say. And he also does not tell the masters, as Paul does, at least incidentally, to go and try to be free. Even though sometimes there were ways to go free under Roman law. He does not criticize the institution of slavery in Rome. He tells them to be submissive. That's what he says. I want all of you to see that is what he says. Now, in part, criticizing the institution of slavery, if Peter were to do that, it would be completely unhelpful, wouldn't it? How would that help anybody? It's so ingrained in the culture, it'd just breed a rebellious spirit in the slaves. And this, in turn, would bring further hardship on the slaves. And the small, fledgling churches in the Roman Empire would have no voice to undo this institution. But it's also important to know that Peter is not endorsing or commending the institution of slavery either. The Bible nowhere says that slavery is from God, like marriage say. It does not speak that way. It is an invention of a, of a fallen, sinful human race. And yet the Bible, and specifically the New Testament, does not condemn it either. I say that because it's true, and I say that because it's trendy again to start to ding people like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards for having slaves. And guys like them. Because slavery has become the, uh, being a master over slaves is the unpardonable sin. And there's a lot of chronological snobbery going on with men who try to sound virtuous in pointing out the fact that they had slaves. And there's articles written on the Gospel Coalition like was George Whitfield a Christian because he had slaves. I think these guys need to read their Bibles. Paul can say that there can be masters who can be Christ-honoring masters. And there can be slaves who are Christ-honoring slaves. Again, we want to ask, what does God say? Not how do we feel. Not what does the culture dictate we should say. That's not, what, that's not where we go. We're the pillar and ground of what? Truth. Here's the truth that sets people free. It's important to get our cues from the scriptures. We must not exceed what is written either in our commendation of slavery or in our condemnation of first century slavery. The Bible in the New Testament is far more concerned about matters of the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of men. That is, the great matters of concern to Jesus and the apostles is not that you rise to certain economic status and have higher social classes and have the same financial status as the upper classes. No, the great concern of Jesus and the apostles is that you live unto God faithfully no matter what your circumstances are in life, whether slave or free. There's a way to be a faithful Christ-honoring slave a way to be a Christ-honoring master. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 as he appeals to people that were called in different conditions and circumstances. Paul asks the question, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Do not worry about it. Do not worry about it. Do not be concerned over it. But if you're able to also become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Oh, That's a beautiful truth. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So your freedom doesn't mean freedom in an absolute sense. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God, with God in that condition in which he was called. I love that. Each one is to remain in the condition with God, because that's who's there. When you're a slave in chains, guess who's there? When you're free, guess who's there? God. It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference for eternity. There's a tendency in us that we can say, oh, if I were just in some other state in life, or if I was in some other circumstance then I could really serve the Lord, right? If my station or my occupation changes, then I could serve the Lord. Or if I were married or if I were single, then I would serve the Lord. Paul says, Remain in the condition in which God called you to himself. You can serve him in any situation, whether slave or free, married or single. That's Paul's point. Don't say, Oh, when I get there. And what does Paul say about slaves? He says, Don't worry about it. Don't be concerned. Don't let that become the angst of your soul. What should be the focus, Paul says? Focus must be on the fact that the Lord has set you free. You're the Lord's freed man. That's what he says. You're the Lord's freed man. The greater slavery of sin and Satan. Those chains are broken. And you're the Lord's freed man. No man can ultimately own you. And honestly, many of the slaves in the the North Atlantic slave trade in the Americas held on to that truth. If you are a slave in Christ, you are there on temporary assignment to bear witness to the gospel in that station. You are to understand that the condition in which you live, the circumstances in your life are not of greatest concern. What is greatest concern is exhibiting a love for Jesus And I hope in the world to come, in the circumstances that will compel those who mistreat you to rethink their lives. Uh, Or as Peter says, let your excellent behavior be shown to the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's exactly what Peter is getting at. And there's a man... There's a man I'd like for you to hear from. His name is Jupiter Hammond. How many of you have heard of Jupiter Hammond? Almost none of you. OK. If you've been in my Sunday school class on First Peter, you may have heard me bring him up last time. He was a slave in Long Island, born in 1711. Every breath he took of his life was as a slave. He was actually an educated man because his masters were Christians, the Lloyd family it educated him, taught him the gospel and he became a Christian through his exposure to the gospel while a slave. And he wrote a sermon entitled An Address to the Negroes of the State of New York in which he was appealing to the slaves in that state to see Christ and his obedience to Christ, Christ sorry, to see Christ and their obedience to Christ in his word regarding their own condition with regard to their masters. This section I'm going to quote, sort of toward the end of that sermon, and you will hear Jupiter be very concerned that the slaves he's writing to who are not in Christ come to Christ, and the ones who are in Christ fix their hope and glory and not on their circumstance. Listen to what he says. Now I'm quoting Jupiter Hammond. Let God give us this faith. We have so little time in this world that it is no matter how wretched and miserable we are if it prepares us for heaven. What is 40, 50, 60 years when compared to eternity? When thousands and millions of years have rolled away, this eternity will be no nigher coming to an end. Oh, how glorious is an eternal life of happiness. And how dreadful an eternity of misery. Those of us who have had religious matters and have have been taught to read the Bible and have been brought by their example and teaching to a sense of divine things, how happy shall we be to meet them in heaven where we shall join them in praising God forever. And he's talking about masters by and large. But if any of us have had such masters and yet have lived and died wicked, how will it add to our misery to think of our folly? If any of us who have, have, who have wicked and profane masters should become religious, that is to be in Christ, how will our estates be changed in another world? Oh, my friends, let me entreat of you to think on these things and to live as if you believe them to be true. If you become Christians, you will have reason to bless God forever, that you have been brought into a land, talking about America, where you have heard the gospel, though you have been slaves. Blessed that you have been brought into America as a slave because you've heard the gospel. If we should ever get to heaven, we shall find nobody to reproach us for being black. Or for being slaves, let me beg of you, my dear African brethren, to think very little of your bondage in this life, for your thinking of it will do you no good. If God God designs to set us free, he will do it in his own time and way. But think of your bondage to sin and Satan, and do not rest until you are delivered from it. We cannot be happy if we are ever so free or ever so rich while we are servants of sin and slaves to Satan. We must be miserable here and to all eternity. And that's a man who's read his Bible. That's a man who, is, who has a vision of eternity. That's a man who has a vision of what the gospel really does, frees us. He's holding out real hope. This is not a coping mechanism to Jupiter. This is not pie in the sky. This is... hit your wagon, set your anchor in Jesus. Understand your greater slavery is to sin and Satan, not to your masters, even though they are are wicked. His great concern is that these slaves come to terms with the slavery that transcends social classes. It's the slavery to sin and if one remains in it it will land them in eternal misery under God's wrath and they should be far more concerned about this than their earthly freedom and for those who are in Christ he wants them to know that these trials fit us for heaven he says that's what he wants them to know these fit you for heaven that's what he wants them to know that's what Peter says too he says you have been distressed by various trials if necessary if necessary that's what he says if necessary there's an engineering going on in trials these trials produce an eternal weight of glory Jupiter wants them to know that now it's true that Paul said about the slaves in 1 Corinthians 7 that I read earlier that if it's possible to be free then do that but that's just the thing It wasn't possible for the vast majority. In really every context in which slavery existed, at least you had to pay your dues over time, fewer debt in debt. But for those for whom it was not possible, what should be said to them? That's the question. What do you say to them? The New Testament's clear. Remain there. Be submissive to masters. Entrust your souls to the Lord there. Under the bigger picture, Understand the bigger picture there. Jesus is staggeringly silent on addressing the social injustice of his day in terms of combating the institutions of his day like the government or slavery. Staggeringly silent. I think we've got to come to terms... I think, I think, I think the Christian evangelical world... who who tends toward um, soft, hard, woke ideologies, whatever they want to say it is, need to really come to terms with this. They really need to... Here's what I say all the time. The more you read the New Testament, the more you are prevented from becoming woke. I mean, you you can't read the New Testament a lot, over and over, and come away woke. You, You can't. By woke, what I mean is well there's lots of things isn't there but fundamentally making all of your ambition to relieve perceived injustice in this life making that your entire ambition specifically as it pertains to racism that they claim is pervasive in our culture and that exists in our institutions and in our police force and in our government and everywhere else the claim of systemic racism and all these things. Jesus is staggeringly silent on attacking systems, institutions. He doesn't do that. The Roman government was responsible for all manner of atrocities. And yet Jesus, completely silent to rebuke them. Now, he did rebuke the greed and oppressive acts of the religious leaders that would bind the consciences of the lower-class Jews of his day. You can read Matthew 23 on that. But this was a rebuke to the leaders of God's covenant people of the time. Even John the Baptist, who often had the ear of Herod, who was the king at the time of Israel, he did take opportunity to rebuke Herod, but not for his bad policy. It was for his adultery. Now, John may have talked to Herod about politics. Herod liked to listen to John, we know. But we don't know that. We don't know what he said. But what we do know is what's written. But we do know that John rebuking him about his sexual illicit exploits cost him his head, ultimately. But he was not a martyr for political activism. I want that to be clear. People use John the Baptist all the time like that. I don't think you should. So how could Jesus and the apostles stay silent about the systems that oftentimes facilitate so much evil? Well, because fundamentally their mission was not to fix the world's systems. The mission was to bring men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to God. Eternity was their focus, not this present evil age. This age will remain evil to the end. Our mission is to bring as many people out of it to Christ as we can. And these slaves to their masters is vital their submission to their masters is vital because submission adorns the gospel well and could bring about the conversion of their masters. Overthrowing the systems of men is not the mission of the church. Being Christ-like in the midst of the sometimes unjust systems to preserve the glory of God bring about the salvation of sinners is the mission of God's church. This is how Peter can say such things. And Peter goes on to say this. Be submissive with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are wicked. Not only does he say be respectful or or be submissive, he also then adds in with all respect. And the word is fear, with all fear. That's what he says. I just ask you, if you're going to exposit this passage, how would you do it? You should think about that. Some of you may be disagreeing with me right now about the way I'm handling it, but I would ask you to look into it yourself and think through it. And hopefully that's what we're doing together this morning, but I really want you to come to terms with this. And the, the reason I want you to is because I want your, your grip to be loosened on this world. This, this passage here, yes, it's about slaves and masters, but it's, it's fundamentally more about who are we? Where are we going? What are we here for? That's why this passage is so wonderful pushes us to think through that. terms fear. Respect. So submit with all fear the idea is that these slaves must recognize these masters as God-ordained authority figures in their lives. Regard them as such. This does not mean that they pretend that their masters are godly men or that this means that they are to remain ignorant or in denial about a master's mistreatment. And it does not even mean that these men and women do not have great sorrow under oppressive treatment. Peter says it, doesn't he? If for sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You see that? Sorrows. He's not ignorant that there will be sorrow. God is not ignorant of that, is he? Peter says in in chapter 1, put to grief or distressed by various trials. Sorrows. That's what he's saying. He's not ignorant. He's not saying, go through it with a plastic smile. (laughs) Doesn't, <laughs> that is not what he's saying. We need to be clear about that. Is to remember that they are slaves for a greater purpose and for a supreme master who has a great purpose through their respectful behavior of the slaves toward their masters. These servants are to be submissive with the trait of utmost respect and godly fear. In other words, the slaves must be afraid of mistreating their masters. I mean, that's pretty much what Peter's saying. You, slaves, be afraid of doing it wrong. Be afraid of, of exploiting, taking advantage of your masters. Jupiter goes all after that in his sermon, by the way. You can read it. He goes all after it. Slaves that were stealing things from their masters, he goes after them hard. And, he's, and in some ways, he's saying, you're making it harder on yourself. Anyway, you can read that. Listen to Hammond again. This one's a little long, but again, totally worth it. Here's Jupiter in regard to submissive with all fear. Now, whether it is right and lawful in the sight of God for them to make slaves of us or not, basically saying I'm not sure. But I am certain that while we are slaves, it is our duty to obey our masters in all their lawful commands, and mind them unless we are bid to do that which we know to be sin, or forbidden in God's word. The Apostle Paul says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness in your hearts as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever a thing man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord." whether he be bond or free. Here is a plain command of God for us to obey. Jupiter says, It may seem hard for us, if we think our master's wrong in holding us slaves, to obey them in all things, but who of us dare dispute with God? He has commanded us to obey, and we ought to do it cheerfully and freely. This should be done by us, not only because God commands, but because our own peace and comfort depend on it. As we depend upon our masters for what we eat and drink and wear, and for all our comfortable things in this world, we cannot be happy unless we please them. This we cannot do without obeying them freely, without muttering or finding fault. If a servant strives to please his master and studies and takes pains to do it, I believe there are but few masters who would use such a servant cruelly. Hmm. Good servants frequently make good masters. If your master is really hard, unreasonable, and cruel, there is no way so likely for you to convince him of it as always to obey his commands and try to serve him and take care of his interest and try to promote it in all your power. If you are proud and stubborn and always finding fault in your master, your master will think the fault lies wholly on your side. But if you are humble and meek and bear all things patiently, your master may think he is wrong. If he does not, his neighbors will be apt to see it, And will befriend you, and try to alter his conduct. And if this does not do, you must cry to him, who has the hearts of all men in his hands, and turns them, as the as the rivers of water are turned. So here's Jupiter's very New Testament esque words of encouragement from a slave to slaves. Have excellent behaviour before your masters that God might be pleased. And it's undergirded finally here by the principle that Peter grounds it in. What is the principle? Why should you why should you submit with fear? For this finds favor. That's what he says. For this finds favor. Sure, with your earthly master, but that's not who he's talking about. At least not firstly. This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This principle is not just to slaves. This is a principle applied to slavery. If, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows and suffering unjustly, this finds favor with God. That's the principle. It applies to you, slaves. It's a principle that all sorrow that is experienced due to some form of mistreatment or persecution finds favor with God. So, when we live excellent, non retaliatory lives for theological reasons and for Christological reasons, this finds God's smile. The, the, the term favor here is the word grace. It's the idea of God's gracious disposition of it's the it's, it's the idea of a gracious disposition of a benefactor. In other words, those who suffer under harsh masters and are living righteously keeping their conscience clean, please their, their master, their 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 ultimate, supreme master. God smiles on them. And it's not that God likes it when He sees us in pain, but rather God is pleased when we suffer unjustly, because that He sees the faith of the Christian servants and their desire to follow in the footsteps of His son like He did when suffering unjustly. And it sees that He sees that we value Him more than the stuff He gives, or the condition in which He places us. This is the life of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I mean, what father would not be pleased when their son stands up for principles that his father has taught him no matter the cost? I mean, what earthly father wouldn't be happy about that, right? How much more your heavenly father, seeing his people suffer for the sake of of holding to what he has said no matter the cost in hopes that they might find Christ? And These slaves, these servants are to have the assurance that though they receive the scowls and anger of their earthly masters, in those moments of persecution, oppression, harsh treatment, God is shining down on them with love and approval. I couldn't help but think of Stephen. There he is, about to be stoned and killed by an angry mob. Venom it says they were gnashing teeth at him. The same acts that will be happening in outer darkness. Of hatred, anger, malicious attitudes. It says that his face shone like an angel. Is that what it says? It's amazing. There he is, about to be stoned and killed. And what does Jesus do? He lifts himself off his own throne to stand in applause and approval and love at his faithful servant who is imitating his own gracious and forgiving character. You know, Stephen in those moments repeating the words of his Savior. Right? Father, forgive them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What's he, he's there as imitating Jesus. That's what he's doing. And what's Jesus doing? He's standing there. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing. What is that? That finds favor with God. That's God's favor. That's God shining down on his persecuted children. And I don't think finding favor is only that these slaves may know by faith that God is pleased with them and they suffer unjustly. I think it means also that God gives them grace. This favor that gives them the ability and strength to bear up under sorrows in a way that maintains faithfulness. Peter says that whoever serves must do so as the one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. God supplies strength. And even when Stephen was being stoned, Luke tells us, now when they heard this, that is when they were hearing Stephen's whole sermon there, an amazing sermon about redemptive history and the temple and all these things, when they heard this and they were mad, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed intently into heaven. Full of the Holy Spirit. How was Stephen able to gaze into the into glory and forgive them and all these things? The Holy Spirit was there. That's what it is. You don't have to worry. When you're a slave, you're with God, right? When you're free, you're with God. When you're persecuted for the sake of the faith, He's with you. You find favor with God. So I know I went long. Maybe that's a lot to think about. This applies, obviously, to employee-employer relationships, too, right? There's also that. That we need to recognize that the employers over us are God-ordained. We need to make sure how we treat them. We need to make sure how we talk about them. And how we talk about them when no one's around. Or when they aren't around, rather. But, brethren, I just just want for my own soul to be gripped by this. And I want you guys to be gripped by this. Um, that we would take encouragement from Peter's perspective about who we are as exiles and that we would not fall prey to the prevailing winds and doctrines that are out there even in Christian evangelical circles trying to figure out every possible way to dilute the, the clear instruction from the New Testament it doesn't help anybody when you're trying to be more compassionate than God it doesn't help anything It brings more division. That's what it does. It brings more suspicion about all injustices all around you. That's what it does. Rather than recognizing that injustices will come and we have patterns in the New Testament on how to deal with it. Certainly there are caveats that I could mention. I didn't mention much this time because I want you to deal with the text. I would say we're thankful for Wilberforce, right? He was addressing a horrific, uh, horrific treatment. I mean, you know, you've seen the movies. I'm sure you've read the books. That's what gave him more angst than anything is their mistreatment. But he was in Parliament. He was a man for that time. That was his station. And he struggled with it himself on whether or not he he should even do it. It took a long, long time. And we'll let God judge that whole thing. But what I do know is the mission of the church. It's just like Jesus, for I came to preach. This is what I came for. Mark chapter one. We came to proclaim and testify the truth of what we've seen and heard. That may bring good responses. Oftentimes, it'll bring bad but we entrust our souls to him. Let's pray.